You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Shade ransomware operators closed down, or so they say. A U.S. pharmaceutical company is the victim of CLOP ransomware, and a Chinese medical research firm is breached by cybercriminals. Centralized versus decentralized approaches to contact tracing. A GDPR assistance site proves leaky. Disinformation breeds misinformation, which breeds folly that brings misery. Ben Yellen tracks responses to the Earn It Act. Our guest is Katie Arrington, CISO for Assistant Secretary for Defense Acquisition on the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. And Mr. Kim seems to be chilling down the ocean. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, April 28, 2020. The operators of the Shade ransomware, also known as Trolldesh, say they've closed up shop and that they regret the harm they've done. As an earnest of their good faith, they've released, ZDNet reports, 750,000 decryption keys and expressed the hope that their victims might use the keys to recover some of their data. Researchers at Kaspersky have looked at the keys and said that they're genuine. Why the gang behind Shade, one of the oldest, if not the most consistently successful ransomware strains, decided to shutter operations is unclear. Bleeping Computer points out that Shade, unlike many gangs, didn't shun Russian or Ukrainian targets, and in fact was most active in those two countries. One always suspects that feeling the hot breath of the law on your neck is a more effective goad than the promptings of a troubled conscience. On the other hand, if that's the case, why bother release the keys? In another ransomware incident, pharmaceutical company Execufarm has disclosed that it was the victim of a ransomware attack in March. The attackers compromised and encrypted personal data belonging to employees of Execufarm, as well as information concerning employees of Parexel that was also maintained on Execufarm servers. TechCrunch confirmed that CLOP ransomware was specifically involved. No decryptors are yet available for CLOP, and the gang has begun to publish the stolen data on a dark web site. HackRead reports that security firm Cybel says it's found evidence that the biomedical company Weighing Medical has been hacked and that some of its stolen data are now for sale in the dark web. Cybel's report says that a threat actor going by the name Theotime, whose claims Cybel deems credible, is asking for Bitcoin for weighing data. 
The stolen information is said to include users, technology, and knowledge for COVID-19 experiments information. Weighing Medical gained a degree of fame or notoriety for its strong claims reported by VentureBeat and others that it has a method of using CT scans to detect COVID-19 infections and that their technology has a 97% accuracy rate. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommend against using either CT scans or X-rays for COVID-19 diagnosis, as do radiological professional organizations in Canada, New Zealand, the U.S., and Australia. Apple and Google are rolling out their decentralized contact tracing app, and it's found favor in some places, Germany among them. Britain's National Health Service will not be using it, however. The NHS is pursuing its own system that will also use Bluetooth low-energy signals as a proxy for close approaches to possible sources of infection, but the BBC says NHS wants the data centralized, the better to adapt them to closer management of the pandemic. According to the New Statesman, the British health agency has brought in U.S. big data company Palantir to help them develop their preferred alternative. GDPR.eu, a Proton-run site co-funded by the European Union that offers pointers about GDPR compliance, was found by Pentest Partners to be leaking data. It is now secured. It was a .git repository. If your work touches the federal government sector, you should be well aware of the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, the CMMC. Katie Arrington is CISO for Assistant Secretary for Defense Acquisition, at the U.S. Department of Defense. Cumulatively, we're losing about $600 billion a year in the U.S. to cyber espionage, um, IP uh, loss, um, and straight-up cyber espionage. And so we knew we had to do something to different. And we had, um, in 2014, President Obama signed in special publication 800-171-R1, and it was directed that all uh, Department of Defense contracts that had CUI, controlled unclassified information, um, had to be attesting to doing these 110 controls in that NIST um, guideline. And so we just needed a way to create, um, you know, get companies A, prepared for the data that they'd be receiving and to have an auditable, uh, trackable way to do that, um, understanding the resourcing within the DOD. So we understood clearly that this needed to be outside the government, um, something that companies, much like an ISO certification, and we could then make sure that everybody had the critical thinking skills behind cyber that are needed to defend themselves in this uh, this industrial age. And where do we stand today when it comes to the rollout? So the rollout, um, we uh, put the model out in January uh, 2020. The accreditation body that is actually the ones that certify uh, the auditors, they are working on the training and curriculum programs. We are still on target to roll out some RFIs in June with the CMMC in it. That, you know, we're in the process of the rule change to the DFAR rule. So we're still on target. Um, I'm not going to pretend and say that COVID-19 hasn't had a impact mm. as the training for those, you know, the CMMC. That's what's really struggling because we did, um, when we originally set it up, it was a 50-50 split. 50% of the education and the training was on online and 50% was in person. We have the training and curriculum. I just don't know how we can uh, modify it quickly enough to execute uh, in early May. That's the only uh, caveat that we have right now. And what has the response been overall to the folks that this is going to affect? How are they reacting to it? 
So in the beginning, um, a little bit of, you know, why. Um, now it's um, widely accepted that this is the path forward, um, that everybody needs to have cyber hygiene and that everyone needs to have some critical thinking skills behind it. So we've actually had an overwhelming response uh, moving forward. Everyone needs cybersecurity. And, and you know, COVID-19 has shown us that, um, you know, the, the, the world the nation, our, our culture, uh, the way we deal with each other has changed. If there's anything positive to be made out of this, it's the heightened awareness of why the CMMC was desperately needed and, you know, what impact cyber has on, on day-to-day life. It's been a resounding um, effort at that maturation right now during this horrible time in our, our country and our, our world history. That's Katie Arrington. She's CISO for Assistant Secretary for Defense Acquisition. State-run disinformation can gain surprising amplification when it finds an audience. The Chinese Communist Party's claims that COVID-19 was brought to Wuhan in October by U.S. service members participating in the World Military Games, a kind of goodwill Olympics among the world's military services, have been widely broadcast by Chinese official statements, often in the form of a call for investigation, sometimes with the suggestion that the virus was an American bioweapon. U.S. Secretary of Defense Esper calls the allegation completely ridiculous and irresponsible, and we're with him on that. But not everybody is, and everybody in this case includes some YouTubers. CNN reports that one U.S. Army reservist who participated in the games has been called out as the source of infection and is receiving all the hostile attention one would expect. The charge that the reservist is the patient zero of the infection and the prime mover in the pandemic is, of course, absurd. But that hasn't prevented YouTubers from pushing it, acting, in effect, as a kind of cyber mob. Prominent among the YouTubers flacking the story is a gentleman whom we will not name, whom CNN calls a misinformation broker, but who describes himself as investigative journalist. He's propounded numerous conspiracy theories in the past, to the extent that Google has stopped running ads on his channel. He is, as he would put it, only asking questions. But the questions are specific and damaging, especially to the reservist who has nothing to do with the virus at all and is being mobbed for it. False suggestion is a form of false witness. But hey, they're just asking questions, right? Finally, it now seems likely that rumors of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's death or incapacitation are false. The Washington Post cites U.S. and South Korean sources that suggest Mr. Kim and his private train are in Wonsan on the Korean East Coast. The rumors had prompted and will no doubt continue to prompt speculation about the future of the North Korean regime, jockeying for succession and so on. But Mr. Kim's father and grandfather were similarly content to let unfounded accounts of their death circulate. That may be the case with Pyongyang's current leader. Wonsan is in some sources being described as a seaside resort, but in truth the port city might be more Perth Amboy or even Port Elizabeth than it is Ashbury Park. But assume it's a DPRK Ashbury Park or Ocean City. What's Mr. Kim up to? Enjoying the boardwalk? Little miniature golf. Maybe some skee-ball. Hey, we're just asking questions. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. 
It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security, also my co-host on the Caveat podcast. Ben, uh, great to have you back. Um, interesting article uh, came by from uh, Mashable. Um, and uh, this is something you and I have been talking about quite a bit over on Caveat, and that is uh, the Earn It Act, which is uh, something making its way uh, through Congress. But uh, it's gotten a, res- a response from the folks who make the Signal app, which is an end-to-end encryption uh, communications app. It allows you to text and uh, have audio conversations and video and so forth. Um, they're saying they may pull out of the U.S. market if this Earn It Act goes through. Uh, help us understand what's going on here. Sure. So the Earn It Act was introduced in the United States Senate. And you know, uh, you and I love uh, legislative acronyms. Um, so this one is Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies Act of 2020. Mm. They even included the word it in the acronym. So mm-hmm. credit yeah, to them high, for that. High praise, yes. Absolutely. Uh, the bill has uh, bipartisan sponsors, and it basically is a way to make companies comply with best practices in terms of encryption based on the recommendations of a government-appointed commission. Mm -hmm. Now, the way they will try to enforce these best practices is to remove the protections under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. As your listeners know, and we've talked about this on Caveat, that act uh, shields companies from liability based on what the users post on those applications or services. If the Earn It Act were uh, to be enacted into law, And the commission put together regulations that uh, were critical of end-to-end encryption services like Signal. Then Signal could be subject to a number of lawsuits under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And what Signal is saying is it would not be worth it for us to do business within the United States 
if we were subject to those lawsuits. I think their fear is certainly a legitimate one. The commission is largely going to be at the direction of the attorney general. The attorney general of the United States, William Barr, is a foremost, uh, one of the foremost critics of end-to-end encryption. Mm-hmm. Um, and encryption generally, he supports a, a backdoor for the government to access information. He has his legitimate reasons behind it. This bill is intended to curb uh, child abuse, child pornography, those types of things. Right. Um, but he is very hostile to the concept of encryption. And if he has his hand in putting these regulations together, you know, this is likely going to be something that Signal will choose not to comply with because it would go against the mission of their messaging service. And if they fail to comply, they would be subjecting themselves to legal liability and would have to leave the market. Mm -hmm. Um, And they let their their users know about this. Um, In a long blog post, they basically said, look, if you enjoy our application, you better start making some calls to your senators. Um, Right now, this has bipartisan support. There's a lot of uh, opposition among privacy groups. And we need you, our users, to make your voice heard to tell your members of Congress that you value our service, you value end-to-end encryption, and you think the Earn It Act is going to undermine that service. Well, and a lot of folks uh, make the point, which which I, I think is correct, that encryption is, is not exotic. So if we're trying to protect ourselves from bad guys, there's nothing keeping a bad guy from going offshore of the United States and finding some encryption, uh, some end-to-end encrypted app that's available somewhere else and and making use of it. Right. And in that sense, this sort of introduces a perverse incentive for people to use overseas uh, applications, applications that you know, aren't headquartered in the United States because, yeah, as you say, this, this encryption is going to exist. It's just whether, you know, the commission writes into regulation that this type of encryption doesn't comply with the commission's best practices and thus companies are going to be subjected to this flood of lawsuits. So I think you're right that any bad guy could find an encrypted application. There are a lot of them out there especially those that originate outside of the United States. Um, And I think that's a large uh, purpose for such widespread opposition to this piece of legislation in Congress. And I I actually just, you know, commenting on that opposition, it's interesting because for people who don't know a lot about digital privacy, when you read the plain language of this act, it seems like a no-brainer. You know, we're trying to protect against child exploitation. Let's put best practices in place to ensure that, you know, the government can get the bad guys if it needs to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's good that the, that these privacy groups um, and you know some of these applications like Signal that have a loyal user base are are getting their voices heard on this matter. Isn't it sort of uh, that phrase "best practices"? Isn't that a bit loaded in this case? It is. You know, best practices is consultant speak. So you know, I'm always I'm always wary of that term. They're using best practices. But when you're threatening to remove a liability shield, it's not really best practices. It's more like, do this or you're going to get sued. <laughs> so best <laughs> right. practices kind nice, of implies nice company. That, yeah, nice company you got here. It'd be a shame if anything were to happen to it. Exactly, yeah. Like best practices <laughs> implies, uh, this would be a good idea for, for you. It would be a good idea for right. you to engage in these practices, right. not you're going to be sued out of business if you don't comply. So yeah, yeah. It, it definitely is a loaded term. All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave.
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Thank you.